0: following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. This psalm, much beloved by the church through all ages, much beloved by our fathers in the faith, the Reformers, Martin Luther, John Owen, John Calvin, remarking on this psalm in particularly exalted words that it is dearly precious to the church and to the saints. It has echoes of a very familiar incident in the prophets, in the history of Israel, when a certain Jonah Um, is found in the belly of a certain whale or big fish. And what does he do there? He cries out from the depths, from the very foundations of the deep. Indeed, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, of the grave. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Likewise, in Psalm 51, which we sang together, we have this image of breakers and waves crashing upon someone trapped in the depths, trapped in a whirlpool. This is the occasion for Psalm 130, the image that's used to open it up. But it's a song of ascent. It's a song of going up, as I said. It has the idea and the hope that you're not going to be left in the depths. You see, Psalm 130 is nestled in the middle of a collection of psalms following that great psalm of Torah, Psalm 119 of the Word of God. We then have a collection of I believe it's uh, 18 Psalms, 120 to 137, which would have been used by pilgrims in Israel as they made pilgrimage to Jerusalem during one of the high feast days in their annual calendar. And Psalm 130 is in the middle of these. Not smack dab in the middle, but it's in the middle of these Psalms. And it describes a problem It's very similar to Psalm 129, actually, in describing a particular problem. It's the problem of sin, the problem of evil, potentially frustrating the psalmist's intentions to go up and worship God. However, in Psalm 129, the problem is external. It's a problem of being surrounded by evil, being surrounded by sinners, by being surrounded by those who have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. Those who have plowed upon my back and lengthened their furrows. Those who hate Zion. But Psalm 130, the sin problem is a bit different. It's internal. It's not coming from outside. It's coming from within, bubbling up. From the dark heart of the psalmist's own sin. In that regard, then, Psalm 130 is one of seven psalms found throughout the Psalter describing the penitent sinner. In fact, being an expression of repentance and contrition of heart, of desire for forgiveness from God. The question I have as we think of Psalm 129 and 130 being mashed together here in in my introduction is, which is the more forbiddable enemy? There's a lot of discussion today, right now, about uh, opposition to the church gathering together for worship. There's a lot of of complaining, and and justifiable complaining, about the forces at work in our world um, obstructing Christians from exercising their faith from being faithful to God, of enemies of the church, without, but my friends, without discounting the very real danger that lurks outside the camp, there is a much more formidable enemy in each and every one of us, and that is our own sin. You see, worship of God, ascending to Zion, It's fundamentally an expression of joy and delight in God, in God as creator and as redeemer. That's the great, the great mystery and and prize of true new covenant worship is that we're delighting in God as creator and redeemer. And what has more power than your own sin and iniquity, your own guilt and shame to snuff out that delight, and that joy. Nothing. You can be thrown in jail and sing God's praises. You can be kept out of a church building and rejoice in the salvation of God. But as long as your sin dwells within you, undealt with, there's no joy. There's no delight. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. Well, the message of Psalm 130 is this. To desperate and despairing but penitent sinners. This is what 130 tells us. You must receive God's forgiveness before you can enjoy his redemption. You must receive God's forgiveness before you can enjoy his redemption. The psalm describes in verses 1 through 3 your great plight then. And then in verses 4 through 6 it describes God's great forgiveness and then finally in the last two verses there's a shift from the individual to the community of God's redeemed and we read in verses 7 and 8 a description of God's great redemption God's or your great plight God's great forgiveness God's great redemption all of this showing us that you must receive God's forgiveness before you can enjoy his redemption let's look at verses 1 to 3 then and consider the great plight that is here described for us. In the great plight of the sinner, described as it is, as being out of the depths, a cry going up. These depths are not a mere step down, a staircase. Or a dugout at the side of a baseball field. No, these are the very cords of suffocating waters and whirlpools. Dragging you down into the depths. So this word in the plural occurs only five times in the scriptures. But they're very familiar passages. Twice in Psalm 69. Where... The psalmist says, "I am in the depths where there is no foothold, and that he's sinking down; he can't get a grip." They occur here. Uh, this this word occurs here in Psalm 130, and then also in Isaiah 51 and Ezekiel 27. Ezekiel 27 refers to the depths of the sea as the judgment on Tyre, that coastal city for rejecting God. But Isaiah 51. It's a bit more interesting. It refers figuratively to the transformation of the depths of the sea into a road. And so in your distress then, in the depths, in the sea, Isaiah 51 then comes in this great book of comfort to promise deliverance. And notice here um, the point I want to make here. This transformation of a sea, of the depths of the sea into a road A passage, what should that remind us of? Of Exodus. And this connection is most significant for our passage here when we consider a cry coming up out of the depths to the Lord. The promise of the Old Testament, as we will see, uh, and, and then the explication of that in Matthew's Gospel, as we will certainly see in the next few months, is that of a new Exodus That based on God's former deliverances through the deaths of his people... God is bringing new redemption in Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah 59, the prophet goes on to call out to God as a serpent slayer or as a dragon slayer. To awake, to once again perform his mighty deeds in the exodus that the redeemed people surely may return. That is, ascend to Zion with joyful shouting, everlasting joy, gladness, and joy free of sorrow and sighing. And this word deep in the singular or verbal sense occurs nine times in the Old Testament, always referring to the depths in which the wicked hide themselves or referring to the reach of God even into the depths where you cannot hide from him. So the depths from which this psalmist sings are the depths of Israel's wrongs and iniquities, not of their persecutions, Not of their oppression by those without, but of their own sin and of the psalmist's own sin. This psalm cries out to God for deliverance, like Jonah, from self-made distress, self-made disaster, and self-made despair. And what is that cry, then, that the psalmist makes in this plight of his— he cries out, Lord, hear my voice. The word here, Lord, that he uses is not as it is in the first. In the first one, he uses God's personal covenant name, O Yahweh. And now here he uses Adonai. 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 All-powerful master, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. He's calling for God's attention. He's calling for God to hear his prayers. He's calling as one in faith, not with any doubting. And so this is not the plight just of a sinner, of an ignorant sinner. This is the plight of a faithful one who recognizes his sin in his contrite of heart, but yet believes, Psalm 65, verse 8, that God is a hearer of prayers, that he is faithful to listen, to, in human terms, incline his ear, to give attention to his supplication, his plea, his cry for help. The interesting thing about this is that if we seek to find ourselves in this verse, we may have to spend a good deal of time searching, won't we? As hard as it is for Christians, for believers, to give praise to God when things are good, to pray and commune with Him when you're blessed, it's so much harder even to turn to him when things are bad and you're in distress, isn't it? Well, perhaps it's not, and that's why God brings you into distress for you. But I think for many of us, what we're instructed and catechized to do in our lives and what our own sin nature wants to do is not to cry out to God when we're in distress with our own sin or with some other issue, but rather to rail against him, to say, it's your fault that I sinned. It's your fault that Adam fell in the garden and I was born into iniquity. It's your fault that I have to do this. And we don't cry out for help, but we murmur and complain and grumble against him. But the heart of the penitent sinner is to cry out to God with supplication, with faith that he will hear you in your distress. Are you doing that when your sin confronts you? When you become agitated in your soul and restless and distressed. Or do you seek to distract yourself and to numb the pain or even worse, to grumble against God who made you? My friends, this psalm gives us a very clear picture of how to deal with sin. And when you find yourself in that feedback loop of sin... Cry out to him for help. He will hear you. He will be attentive to the voice of your supplications. And he will be quick to come and save. But the heart of the plight of the sinner is found in verse 3. If you, Yahweh, using the covenant name again, should mark iniquities, O Adonai, who could stand? using both names here that he's already used in verses 1 and 2. We see now the psalmist tying together, as it were, a little verse, a little stanza of the psalm, verses 1 to 3. And he's emphasizing here his address to God as Yahweh and as Master, as Adonai, as Lord. And he says, if you should mark, literally, if you should keep a watch for, if you should note a record of my sins... Of my iniquities, how could I stand before you, particularly in the judgment? How could I stand in the judgment? In Psalm 1, you have two senses of the word stand. You have, uh, How blessed is a man who um, stands not in the way, or sits not in the seat of scoffers, stands not in the way of uh, sinners. But then later on, in verse 5 of Psalm 1, You have there, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But then the wicked will not stand in the judgment. You have a contrast in Psalm 1, but here in Psalm 130, we're talking only of standing in the judgment. And the plight of the penitent sinner is, one, is, is that this sinner then recognizes the desperation, the urgency of his situation. If God marks my sins, if he notes them, if he keeps a record of my sins and judges me by them, I will be utterly destroyed in the judgment. this This is why sinners who do not come to God for forgiveness, but rather cower from him in terror of his justice, why they flee to the depths to hide from him. Because this is a serious problem. God is perfectly just. He will punish sin. Why did Adam and Eve hide from God in the garden? Because they cowered. They feared in terror. They feared God. And this is the plight of the great sinner. This is your great plight, my friends. For each of us are born into sin. And out of that sin nature which we've inherited, which has been corrupted, and which we have inherited from Adam and Eve, all of us then commit transgressions of sin. How many of you have loved the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as the reading of the law told us is commanded of us today? None of you. None of you have. By thought, word, and deed, you have transgressed His law. You have neglected to do the things which which you ought to have done in your various life situations. And you have amassed for yourself a record of sins that if God were to keep them before his face, you would be doomed to hell. That is your great plight. But God. There are a number of statements all throughout the scriptures. And here is one of them where we have a but. But. And then what follows is a great declaration of hope. Look at verse four. Here we see God's great forgiveness for us unfolded. But there is forgiveness with you. The psalmist says to God, there is forgiveness with you. This word forgiveness here is the word pardon. It's almost as a word of pardon, a judgment of not guilty, pardoned. The sin has been expunged. And this is the psalmist's great hope. He hopes in this pardon. Later on, he says in verse 5, In his word do I hope. And that word then is this word, forgiveness and pardon. In fact, literally a declaration of pardon. Here the psalmist should remind us as Protestants of Paul should it? here the psalmist is anticipating God's great work of justification of sinners. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, a word of pardon, whereby... Um, God expunges our sin. He wipes it away. He obliterates it. He cleanses us of sin in this. And he constitutes us as righteous in his sight. That we might be declared righteous. That we might be brought in only by the righteousness of Christ. Imputed to us and received through faith alone. This sinner has great faith. Not only that God will hear him. But that God will forgive Him. Do you reflect on this great prize that God has given to man, that God has given to his church? He's given us food and drink and shelter and clothing. He's given us health, I think for most of us. But the greatest of all prizes is this righteousness, this forgiveness that God gives, this pardon. And it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. He's saying, I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits for the Lord, for Adonai, more than the watchman for the morning. Literally, more than the uh, watchmen for the morning are watchers for the morning. More than that, I'm a watcher, I'm a waiter for the Lord. For his word of hope, for his pardon. And this is a great forgiveness that comes to us as a prize from God's right hand that is sent to us by the Father in a particular person. And that person is Jesus Christ. You see, when we get to Matthew's gospel, and we'll see this, the disciples and, in fact, all the people of Israel, I think they have Psalm 129 on their minds. They're looking for deliverance from the Romans. They're looking for deliverance from external oppression. They're looking for a restoration of the Davidic kingdom that we might have visible power and the extension of political authority, even back to the bounds from the Nile to the Euphrates. But what Jesus brings, what God the Father sends, what the Lord sends is so much greater. A spiritual kingdom whose foundation is not one of military might or commercial wealth, but a foundation of Pardoning sinners of condescending to the contrite of heart. This forgiveness is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is he who comes to you this morning by his word. It is Jesus Christ who comes to you and says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, come and I shall give you rest. Find rest for your souls. Come, buy without money, drink without cost. And that Is the message that is the kind of Exodus that's going to come in Matthew's gospel? That's the kind of forgiveness that the penitent sinner in Psalm 130 is crying out for. What the faith filled man desires and what he in fact will be given. God's great forgiveness. If you're here this morning, children and friends, if you're here and you have yet to deal with your sin, by receiving God's gracious pardon through faith in Jesus Christ, then I plead with you, close the deal. Grasp this great prize which is offered to you. Exercise the faith which is here represented to us. If your sin is troubling you, rejoice that God has stirred up your heart so you're not satisfied with the things of this world. And it's vanities. Rejoice that you are bothered and that you agonize and you're troubled by your sin. But don't end there. Cling then to the promise which God gives, the promise of pardon and forgiveness. And be saved. And that brings us now to our third heading, our third point in verses 7 and 8. We have an interesting statement of God's great redemption. We've seen your great plight, the plight of the sinner, but how the penitent deals with that and grasps the great prize of God's great forgiveness in verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6. And now we see an interesting turn, a shift in posture to the whole people of God and God's great redemption. Look what the psalmist says. And envision yourself marching with a congregation up the hill to Mount Zion to worship God in his temple. O Israel, hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is chesed, there is mercy, covenant loyalty, loving kindness, gracious promises of life and love. And with him is abundant redemption. Redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Actually, I hear this in my mind antiphonally with a leader saying, O Israel, hope in Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And then the people respond, And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God's great redemption here, image for us. Note a couple of things. One, it's a redemption of a people, not merely of an individual. The Psalms give us a picture of the heart, not only of King David specifically, but the heart of the Savior, a heart of love for sinners, of agony over sin. It gives us a picture of the heart of of God's faithful people. There is no greater psychological treatise ever published than the book of Psalms. It is truly a true representation of the psyche, the psychology, the soul of man. And yet it is also filled with promises for Christ's church, for Christ's bride, and here we see a picture of the enjoyment, the, 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 the rejoicing in God's redemption, which is promised for God's people. And souls of believers are at their death made perfectly holy and are immediately then brought into God's immediate presence where they enjoy the eternal blessedness of God. Yes, for all eternity, forever and ever And they enjoy it together, not as individuals, not in a prayer closet for eternity, separated out from their brothers and sisters. But no, in the great congregation and assembly of the righteous, for he will redeem Israel. He will redeem his church. He will redeem his people, individuals, and as a body, as a society. And there's great joy in that, isn't there? He says, hope in the Lord, hope in him, for there is with him covenant loyalty and mercies everlasting. There is in him abundant redemption. I said last week that the benefits which Christ has received as king and as perfect God, man, they don't trickle down to us through a sieve, but rather they barrel down upon us they cascade upon us like a waterfall and that's the picture here as well the redemption of Christ is abundant and cascades upon his church that we might enjoy it and so what is the connection then between this picture of God's great redemption and all, and then in God's great forgiveness in 4 through 6 well that's just my point the connection is that you must receive God's great forgiveness before in order to enjoy his redemption as a people. And whenever we fellowship together, whenever we gather together for worship, whenever we spend time together, we're to do so enjoying his redemption. But that's possible only through the acknowledgement of your sin and the proper dealing with it, proper dealing of it, through the pardon, the pardon which comes From God through Jesus Christ. And that is the picture given in this psalm. There's another image of sinking into the depths, which ties into our New Testament reading this morning. And that's the image from Matthew 14. What's happening in Matthew 14? Well, just as Jonah had sank down into the depths in the belly of a great fish, in Matthew 14, after Jesus gets done teaching on the kingdom, he revisits Nazareth, and he's rejected by the people there. He he hears of John the Baptist's uh, martyrdom. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. All kinds of things happening. And in walking on the water, Peter cries out to him, the author of our New Testament reading this morning from First Peter, he says, "Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water." And he, Jesus, said, "Come." And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus, this great picture of faith. But what happened? Seeing the wind, seeing the distress of the sea, he became frightened. And that distress entered his heart, and unbelief crashed against his stalwart and bold heart. And beginning to sink, faith then bursts out of his mouth. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Matthew tells us, immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Interesting Interesting parallels between Psalm 130 and this picture, this familiar passage from Matthew 14, and certainly we'll explore it in greater detail when we get there in probably like 10 years in my Matthew series. But one of the interesting parallels is we see the distress of one who is caught in his sin. In Peter's case, his sin was one of disbelief in a moment. And he enters into distress. But then we see that though he had a moment a flash of disbelief, yet he was still a man of faith. And so he cries out to Jesus with full confidence that he can save him. He says, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus do? He, as it were, pardons his sin and graciously saves him and Then Peter is brought back into the boat, an ark of safety upon a sea of turmoil, as it were, in which he then worships God, worships Jesus Christ with the church, this little boat of disciples. Isn't this the very movement to Psalm 130 from sin and trouble then to pardon and forgiveness and salvation, and then to enjoy redemption with God's people. This is the movement then that Matthew is going to flesh out for us in his gospel, taking a people caught in a judgment for their sins and then restoring them to God's immediate presence and fellowship through forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Week by week, you make your ascent to Mount Zion when you come to church. You come into worship And all manner of emotional, spiritual, physical, psychological, social, and theological baggage may be weighing you down and getting in the way of you enjoying the redemption which is proclaimed from this pulpit. Some of you have family members and neighbors that may mock and scorn our devotion to Christ expressed in weekly worship, even abominated as saying it's a danger to society. Some of you are sorting through theological confusion. Some of you may have physical pain that distracts you or keeps you from the purposes of the Lord's day. But what is the most formidable obstacle standing between you and the full enjoying of God? It is your sin. Nothing Nothing is more serious or potent a foe than that. The only way to cut down that enemy is to receive God the Father's forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. And I hope I've made that clear from this text, because the message of Psalm 130 is that you must receive God's forgiveness before you can enjoy his redemption. And Jesus Christ is the sole Redeemer. And yet we are instruments in that Redeemer's hand insofar as we declare the gospel. And Paul says, I have pled with you. I plead with you now. Be reconciled unto God. And the only way of reconciliation is forgiveness full and free in Jesus Christ. So I pose some questions to you. Do you understand your plight? Do you recognize that you are in desperate need of forgiveness? Do you get frustrated at your own sin, being unable to listen to your parents, or being unable to keep your thoughts pure, or your speech gentle and right and well-ordered, or to, to maintain a, a diligence about your work so that when you come into the Lord's day that you're free of distractions? Do these things bother you? Well, have you yet received God's forgiveness with the eagerness and anticipation? Pictured for us in Psalm 130, watching more earnestly for it than even the watchmen are watchers for the morning. In other words, do you know that you are a sinner and have you sought out his forgiveness in confession of sin and prayer? If not, why not? Do you not know what awaits you? Consider the great prize. Abundant redemption, everlasting love, and faithful uh, blessedness from God the Father's right hand. God's great redemption, though we might picture it as a great feast or a big celebration, and these are fitting pictures, yet at the end of the day, it is that word for which we wait. The living word, the Redeemer himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who promises eternal happiness and joy. Who in 1 Peter chapter 1. uh, In whom we will greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. When he is revealed. That we might result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may think he's come and I'm forgiven. And so there's nothing for me to wait for now. But yet there is yet waiting to be done. We wait for the dawn. We wait for the consummation of his kingdom where all things outwardly will express with coherence and faithful correspondence the, the victory won by Christ for sinners. But even now, dear ones, there is healing by his spirit as the word is applied to us in our lives. But you must receive God's forgiveness before you can enjoy that healing, before you can wait longingly for His revelation, before you can rejoice in our God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.